0: Sean, he'll be
1: right with you. No problem. You know this is what they film Towering Inferno? That's comforting. Hey, guys. Come on back. she offer you some water? Oh, yeah. We're cool. It's not way. Come on in. It must be Mark. Hi. We took a look at everything, and congratulations. We're going to start you off with a $500,000 investment. Maurice is going to... Talk to you about some corporate restructuring. We'll file as a corporation in Delaware. Come up with a stock structure that allows for new investors. Now, let me That's a to- scene from the film The Social Network, when Mark Zuckerberg secures $500,000 of investment from Peter Thiel and his venture capital firm for his promising startup. That promising startup, of course, was Facebook. That film in 2010 helped to shine a Hollywood spotlight on the venture capital industry, and how it was behind the rise of tech giants like Facebook. But how do you get to the top of that industry? And what's it like when you get there? I'm Graham Ruddick, and you're listening to Business Leader, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. In this episode, we speak to Saranga Chandra Dilake, one of the leading figures in the venture capital industry in Europe. Saranga is a general partner at Balderton Capital in London. Balderton manages more than $4.5 billion of investment in promising startups. But before that, Saranga was a founder and chief executive of his own technology company and has interesting views on how founders and chief executives are getting burned out and need more support. But before all that, he could have become a journalist. This is what happened next.
0: I love journalism. Um, I love the press in general and media. And I was my school newspaper editor. I was an editor at, at my uni. Yeah, probably my biggest time sink in the second, my second year at college, certainly. I think I, I there's a parallel world where that would have definitely happened. I think I think the reality of why it didn't happen was I mean quite boringly I I graduated in 2000, right? So while I was at university the dot-com boom was happening all around me. And every every week, it felt like you'd read about people who had, you know, left university early or had graduated the year before or two years before, who were starting companies or joining startups and moving to Silicon Valley. And it was just so exciting. And as someone reading computer science, it felt really part of me. Um, and so, you know, graduating into that excitement, I felt like there was this kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to be part of that revolution. And so, I couldn't really do anything else. So even though even though briefly I looked at journalism and media, briefly I looked at banking and finance and all that kind of stuff, in, in my heart of hearts, I knew that I'd have to work in tech.
1: So you could just talk me through what happened sort of post-university and how, it, how you came to be on the path that eventually ends with you becoming a, a founder and a CEO.
0: Like I say, I, I looked at a few different options when I was graduating, but actually decided that tech was the way to go. I joined a company called Trilogy, which is a US software company. And it was a classic dot-com hire in the sense that the company was sort of growing really, really rapidly. They were you know, hiring great people from all over the world. We got moved to Austin, Texas, where they were headquartered. Um, it was a very, very glamorous life working in this sort of fast paced um tech company and about four months in we had a very abrupt end to it when the dot-com crash happened and the company turned out to be you know one of those to sort of paraphrase Warren Buffett someone that, a company that was swimming without any shorts on and so when the tide went out they got exposed on that and they laid off I think it was about a third maybe even a half of their workforce in one day including of course all of us who just joined recently um, and that was a massive you know hit to me It was I mean, the first time really that I'd really failed at something um, And it was just a few months into my career. And I just remember, you know, going back to my apartment in Texas from the one-on-one meeting where I discovered that I no longer had a job and just not knowing how to process that and what to do with it and how I was going to react from that. Um, And this is, you know, uh, at the time I was on a visa in the US, so... Not only had I lost my job, but I had to kind of leave the country within days, otherwise I'd be you know prosecuted by the immigration services or whatever. So so it was a very, very immediate and abrupt failure, a failing. And and I think what was good about it was that it really taught me that, you know, sometimes you have to take these risks and sometimes you have to deal with real, you know, negative points and downturns in your career. And if you can survive them, actually that makes you You know, it's a superpower, right? If 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 it detracts so much that you can't survive them, then that's no good. But if you, but I I found that I could deal with it, and that I was okay in the end. And so that gave me the confidence to take many many more risks. So what that meant was that when I figured out what to do next, I decided rather than you know retreating to a safe job, I was going to join another startup, which I did, a company called Autonomy that was in Cambridge at the time. And I joined; I was probably about employee number one hundred and thirty or forty there, and that put me on a trajectory to learn a lot again and. Again, I knew it was high risk, but it was worth taking the risk. That took me to Silicon Valley. That got me excited about the idea of starting my own company. Um, That led to Blinks and so on and so forth. So, you know, ironically, having a big failure early in my career was quite a valuable thing because it sort of taught me not to worry too much about it.
1: How formative do you think it was? I mean, is it something that's faded into the background as time has gone by or or did suffering that and knowing the worst could happen, but actually wasn't that bad? Yeah. Mean that you could, as you say, you were in a position to take risks,
0: yeah, I think it was really important in the early days because it gave me this uh, i think I think you know a lot of people are afraid of failure and so they they won't take those risks, and the reality is you have to take risks to really make big leaps forward um so it was very important then. I mean, it's less relevant now for me personally, but I'm really glad that it happened. I don't think I, I think my trajectory would have been very different had I' done other things and and not had that failure, so you know ironically, many people who you know, do well at school, do well at university or whatever, and, you know, kind of study and get a good job and so on, you end up becoming a bit too successful almost for your own good, I think, and you end up getting a bit wrapped up in that. And actually, it can be good to sort of see, to experience a few setbacks.
1: In 2007, Saranga's career reached a key moment. He led a spin-out of a new business from Autonomy, which at the time was one of the UK's most promising technology companies. Blinks was listed on the stock market in London, but Saranga, as the founder and chief executive, was based in Silicon Valley in California. Blinks had developed technology that allowed you to search online for videos.
0: I mean, it was relatively straightforward because what happened at Autonomy was that at the time there was a real fashion for a lot of tech companies would let employees spend some time working on side projects. And the idea was that you could work on something for yourself, but also hopefully some of those might be the next product, the next idea or whatever. Um, Google, I think, were the ones who really made it famous. They had this idea where on Fridays, people at Google were allowed to work on a side project of their, of, their, of their whatever they wanted to. Gmail actually originally came from one of those side projects. It wasn't something which the Google CEO wanted to do. It was something that came out of an engineer's... Um, engineers sort of interest. And so in that same way, autonomy, we were allowed to do side projects. And there was a side project which was around, could we take some of the technology the company had built and apply it to consumer facing problems rather than enterprises. So so Autonomy was always very much an enterprise software company. um, And the idea was, could we do something interesting in in the consumer market? And yeah, and so I was involved in that project. There were a few of us working on it. And it was a really, really interesting idea. And we thought that there was potential for it. And so we then went out and tried to sell it. And there was some initial traction in the early days around primarily the use of that Um, technology to search video content because video online was beginning to grow. This is a few years. It's around the time that YouTube was founded, around the time that BBC iPlayer was launched. And so as people started to think about that problem, we had a tool that could sort of solve the problem. And so we sort of thought, oh, there's an opportunity here to build a search engine. And that's really what we started to do. And then it became very clear that actually it was a very different kind of business. The business model was totally different. It was probably advertising-based. People that we had to hire were very different. Um, The people we sold to, the customers were totally different. We were building a consumer-facing product. We were selling to advertisers, whereas, you know, Autonomy was selling to, you know, Fortune 500 companies. The the shorthand we used to use was that, you know, our employees needed to be wearing jeans and T-shirts and hoodies, And their employees were all wearing suits. And there was nothing wrong with either, but that was the nature of the businesses. And so at that point, it became clear we were going to have to do some kind of spin out. And so then we had to engineer that and figure that out. And the the details of that were less exciting. That was more about all kinds of tax regulations and everything else. But ultimately, we did that. And that allowed us to be more successful in the end. I think it's one of these funny things where the interesting thing about being able to launch it within autonomy was that it gave us the confidence and the comfort and the kind of foundation to build something new without having to do it, you know, with with no money at all. But then for it to be big, we had to take a bit of a risk and launch off on our own. Um, Because if we tried to keep it as a division within the company, I think we would have had a ceiling.
1: Many of you will have heard the name of Autonomy and Mike Lynch and know what subsequently happened to the tech company and its founder. Autonomy was bought by the American tech giant HP for £7.4 billion in 2011. But not long after, HP wrote off most of the value of autonomy. There was then a long legal battle, and in 2022, HP won a civil fraud case after claiming that it had been duped into overpaying for autonomy. Mike Lynch has been extradited to the US to face criminal fraud charges there. How do you feel about what subsequently ended up happening to the company? Obviously, you were no longer part of it, but how did you feel about what ended up happening?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, so I'm so i happy to say everything I know because, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I wasn't involved in any of that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sad, really. Um, you know, autonomy was a really important, formative place for me to work. Um, and I learned a lot from actually lots of people there, uh, including Mike uh, and his co-founder, Richard. But then, obviously, the company continued to grow. I mean, it, when I left, I think it was doing about a hundred million dollars of revenue, which seemed huge at the time. By the time they were acquired, they were doing more like one and a half billion dollars of revenue. So they they did a lot after I left. I can't pretend to be, to have, to have achieved any of that um, while I was there. And the reason why I think it's a shame, you know, personally, it's because, you know, it, it obviously has tarnished memories for a whole bunch of people who were important to me. But more importantly, it was a, a genuine, like, success of the UK tech industry. I think, you know, role models like that, successes like that are really important. Now, 25 years, 20 years later, there are now thankfully many, many others as well. So it's fine. But for a while, that was the big example that we had in the UK. And, you know, any negativity attached to it, I think, affected the whole whole market, not just that company. And, you know, when you're a new founder embarking on that highly risky, slightly rational journey of starting your own company, you look around and you look for someone, you look for role models that you can look at and say, Even if I never ever speak to that company or that person, you know, it, this is possible. And I think it played an important role for a whole bunch of founders and to do that, uh, to be able to do that. And so, you know, the fact that there's that there's that there's been this saga ever since, unfortunately, tarnishes that. But the good news is, since then, we've had many other great Companies start here in the UK and across Europe, and I think going forward there are tens, if not hundreds, of great role models. So that's you know in the end it's it's going to be fine.
1: How surprised were you by what ended up happening?
0: Um, I honestly had, I mean, I, I by that point I had so little overlap with the team that were there that I I didn't know anything of what was going on. So I had a tiny number of shares that I still owned. Um, so I remember my 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 overlap with the process was literally a letter coming to me saying, you know, just so you know, this company is, you know, HP has entered into an agreement to acquire autonomy and therefore you will be being cashed out. And that was it. So I don't really have much depth beyond that.
1: Mike Lynch was obviously a shareholder in the business after the spin out. How important a mentor was he to you and how long did you carry on talking to him for?
0: Yeah, I mean, he was a um, super important mentor. I mean, particularly earlier on. I mean, you know, I think he had, you know, he had founded multiple companies. Yeah, I mean, he was a rare case of a genuine UK entrepreneur in the technology market and ecosystem you know he had trodden that path before i had and so and he was very very open about sharing that and he to me but also i think to a whole bunch of other entrepreneurs out there so um you know he was always very always very generous with his time when it came to things like that and that was really important and th- i mean you know we see it even now with boulderton that you know one of the most important things we can do is is sometimes connect founders to you know mentors or coaches or just you know People who've been on that journey before, um, you, you know, because it's such a lonely journey, because it's such an unusual, singular, unique job, it, you know, people tend to really uh, latch on to others who've been, who've, who've had it and who've, who've been through it. And for me, Mike was, you know, one of those people.
1: How much is the network still an important part of um, the legacy of the company? Because clearly there's, there's, there's the company that you built, there's Dark Trace and there's a few others out there. I mean, there has been a legacy left behind. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah. I mean, so one of the really interesting things about technology ecosystems is that you get this, you know, you get this sort of phenomenon of tribes, right, where a company does well and a whole bunch of people who are in that company at at varying levels kind of see it, get it, and suddenly think, I could do this. And in in the case of Blinks, it was, you know, very directly within autonomy to start off with. But in the case of Darktrace, it was after autonomy, right? And, And I think that We've seen that across Europe and across the Baldurton portfolio as well. So, for example, you know, one of our companies, GoCardless, has, I think, spawned something like 20 or 30 startups, you know, a number of which have become unicorns. Revolut is a, is a key creator of tribes. You know, there's about 30 or 40 companies that have come out of the Revolut marketplace and, and the Revolut employee base. And we've backed some of those, right? And, and, and if you look at Silicon Valley, where this has been happening for many more generations, it's absolutely critical. I mean, you know, the early uh, employees of companies like Silicon Graphics, or Intel ended up, you know, founding companies like Google or Amazon. And, and you know, some of those people went on to start YouTube and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so people thought about the PayPal mafia and how influential that's been across across Silicon Valley. And so so you know autonomy created one of those tribes like any other. And I think I think it's a it's a critical part of what makes a technology ecosystem work is you know you want some of these big Singularly successful companies because they tend to spawn off lots more. Do
1: you think the autonomy case and Mike Lynch's case has been handled fairly by the legal system in the UK and US? I
0: I, honestly, that that is beyond my expertise. I'm not a lawyer, not even slightly. Um, so, so I don't know, um, and I and I don't know enough of the detail, honestly, to to know. Yeah, for me, I mean, for me, the judgment is more around, like, like I say, it, that company had a huge impact. I think on a whole generation of entrepreneurs. It, you know, from afar, because it was great to have a role model, but also for those of us who benefited from you know direct experience or mentorship or whatever. And that's the bit that's sad for me.
1: Saranga stood down as chief executive of Blink's, the company he had built in 2014. Its value on the stock market had cleared one billion dollars, but the company had been through challenging times along the way, and it would do so again. He was close to burning out. That experience of being a founder and CEO has shaped how he works with businesses today and those that Bolton and he have invested in. He thinks that we need to look again about how we approach work and the value of slogging away hour after hour. Being a CEO is a shitty job.
0: And the reason it's a shitty job is because you're sort of in the middle of a variety of different groups of people, all of whom want a piece of you, all of whom want something quite different from you. And so you're basically being stretched in all directions. And it's like it's like there are people grabbing hold of every limb and pulling in different directions. And your job is to somehow bridge the gap between them all, you know? I mean, I'm being overly simplistic, but you know, your employees want to have, you know, a relatively straightforward job that, you know, they come along to at a certain time and they leave at a certain time. Your investors are constantly questioning, you know, why you aren't getting more from your employees. Your um, customers want one thing, but then they want something else. Your different customers want different things. And you know, and so you're you are the in the end you're the person in the middle of all of that and and i think it ends up being quite a lonely position as a result which goes back to what do we look for in founders one of the things i look for is an obsession around the thing that they are building the product the company the the problem they're you know that they're, they're trying to solve because it is such a hard job that i think you've got to have some slightly irrational desire driving you to keep up with the the pressures of it, so it, it is a it's a really tough journey, but it's also an incredibly rewarding one. You know, I had lunch recently with a founder that we had backed a number of years ago, whose company did not work out. But talking to her, you know, earlier today, it she, it it's it was still an amazing journey. You know, and so much was learned, and so much happened. Great relationships were built, and all of this will will you know have an impact on that person's life going forward. Even and this is a case where the company did not do what it what we had all hoped it would do. Um, let alone the ones where that does happen.
1: Were you burned out by the end as a CEO and founder?
0: I I don't think I was fully burned out, but I was definitely at a stage where it was increasingly tough. You know, I think that uh, in, in my case... I really enjoyed the early part of the journey, the first sort of three, four years. I learned a lot from the following six or seven years. By the time I got to year number 10, I'd got to the point where I wasn't really learning very much anymore. And it was just the same thing over and over and over again. It was a treadmill where you have to sort of get a little bit faster each time round. And there's a point at which that was just too much for me. Um, So... I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to last a lot longer at that point. And so I was lucky to spot that fairly early and kind of manage a graceful exit. I became chair of the board. I was able to promote my number two to being the CEO. He ended up being a great CEO for the next four or five years. And so, you know, I, I was able to manage it quite well. The, the danger point is when people don't spot this early on and have a bit more of an actual crash, uh, which can happen. But
1: um Luckily, that didn't happen to me. How important is it for the founder to eventually recognise that they should bring someone else on as a CEO?
0: I, I mean, they don't necessarily have to, right? I mean, I think I think the key the key I think is that you've got to be. So, the, I think there are two basic rules. With if you want to be a founder and a CEO, there are two basic rules that I would I would kind of live by. The first is realise this is a long term journey. If you want to do this for a long time. Even if you want to do it for a relatively short time, it's probably a seven, eight year journey. It could easily be a 20 or 30 year journey. Second thing is realize that there is nothing wrong with, with bringing someone in if that's what you want to do. So so on the first thing about it being a long journey, I think the key is if you, if you realize it's a long journey, you realize that you can't sprint the whole time it's you you have to find balance in the way that you live and the way you work it's got to fit around everything else you might want to do in your life if you're expecting to get married if you're expecting to have children if you're expecting to spend time with friends, you know, go on holidays, etc. We can all forego some of that for a, a few months, for a year or two, maybe. We can't forego that for decades. And so it's very unrealistic to expect that. And so I think you have to introduce this idea of balance in your life, whatever that balance is for you early on, if you want to last. I wasn't very good at doing that personally, as a founder, I was very, very on or off. And, and that's, I think, one of the things that contributed to, to me having to stop. I think some of the founders that we've worked with here at Balderton have been much better at managing that balance. And that's allowed them to go for a lot And then the second piece, like I say, is this thing around be aware of yourself. So, you know, every year or so have a deep introspective day or, you know, a couple of hours, whatever it takes, where you think to yourself, am I still enjoying it? Am I still getting from it what I thought I would get from it? And if not, let's think about what my route is from here and how I'm going to manage that. In some cases, people find that they enjoy it forever. And that's great. And in other cases, they don't and they need to move on. Um, Being a CEO in particular is a sort of unique job. It's a sort of funny position where you're sitting in the middle of lots of different people all asking different things of you and it puts a lot of pressure on you the most obvious way of dealing with that pressure is to work yourself into the ground Um, but actually that doesn't work because unfortunately running a company is not a sprint it's a marathon it's something which takes 10 years not one year sufficiently motivated people can work themselves into the ground for about a year or two but you can't cram forever right at some point that breaks and so we really believe that you know it, it reflects my experience as a founder. It reflects my partner Bernard's experience as a founder. And if you look at the founders who've really gone the distance and you know been at the top of their game for decades, they are people who are able to balance the different aspects of their lives. And for different people, it's different things, right? For some people, it's family. For some people, it's you know being physically active. For others, it's about having more than one business. But the point is that keeping that balance is really important to to be able to last the distance. Last year, we did kind of following on this conviction we had, which was strongly held, but had little evidence behind it. We decided we'd try and find out if it was a real thing or whether we were just imagining it. And we did a large survey and we found that actually we were right. The resounding majority of founders believe that they do not have sufficient balance in their lives. And that as a result of that, they are more stressed, more tired for too much of the time. And that isn't just bad from the point of view of the way they feel, but they actually also believe, the majority of them believe that it means they end up making substandard decisions. They they, they end up um, sacrificing ultimately the success of their company because they are so overworked. And I think that the reason for this is down to the history of of the industry, where really, as a sort of originally cottage industry sort of exploding on the west coast of the U.S., out of dorm rooms at places like Stanford and MIT there's this real macho culture to the whole thing of this kind of idea of you know you should just work harder and do more and if you didn't that was somehow a sign of weakness and and so on the mythos around that stuff has just been taken a bit too far. And you see it even now, right? I mean, you see, you know, um, Elon Musk taking over Twitter, and, you know, people bringing in sleeping bags into the office. Um, but that's not really how you fix Twitter. And, and you know, stories about, you know, back in the day when Microsoft was being built, Bill Gates used to apparently compete with his other employees about who could sleep the least. And this is before the research was done showing that if you don't sleep, then you just don't perform very well at anything, you know. Um, in fact, sleep deprivation is so bad that it's literally used as a form of torture by many armies. So, you know, so I think the world has moved on since that era. And, and yet tech, the tech industry really hadn't. And it was still still espousing a lot of that kind of thing. And that's why last year we, we launched a comprehensive founder well-being program, which was all about, you know, helping founders realize that we want them to succeed in the long run. And in order to do that, we believe... They should, and they should decide how they want to do this, think about the balance they want in their lives, and we would support them in achieving that.
1: Saranga Chandudelake has now been a venture capital investor for more than a decade. He swapped Blinks for Balderton in 2014 and returned to London to start his career in venture capital. He joined Balderton after a meeting with Bernard Lto, its managing partner. He has fascinating views on the strengths and failings of the venture capital industry and is more enthusiastic about his work than ever. In fact, he has little interest in running his own business again, despite still being in his mid-40s.
0: I made the switch because of my partner Bernard. Um, So I had vaguely sort of filed away in my head that maybe it was a thing I would do one day. And you're absolutely right. I mean, historically, venture was a sort of semi-retirement gig, I would say. Um, This is probably going back 20 years now. And the few VCs I knew decently well in Silicon Valley during my time there were of that type. Um, And so I sort of, it looked like fun, but I'd always sort of imagined it was something I'd do much, much later. And then I happened to get uh, connected to Bernard via some mutual connections And we just had a sort of free-ranging chat. And in that chat, he basically said, look, we're looking at adding another partner. Would you be interested? And he had been an entrepreneur before as well. He was the founder and CEO of Business Objects. He had then, at that point, been in venture for about eight, nine years. And he said, look, it's been an amazing journey for me. And, And he really convinced me in that in that one coffee conversation that it was worth a proper look.
1: Is it a natural transition that you can make as a founder and CEO? Or do you think there are certain character traits that you have that meant you've been able to do it?
0: Uh, I think, so not every founder is a great VC and not every VC could be a great founder. And and, and there are many great VCs who are not founders. So, I, so the reality is it's just that there, there isn't a sort of easy one-to-one mapping of these things, I think. But I think, you know, if you are someone who has the work ethic that is typical for a founder or CEO. If you're someone who has a deep, inherent sort of excitement around technology and the change it can bring and the opportunity it can open, then those are the sorts of qualities that probably will make you a good VC as well. But on the flip side, you've got to have other things like you you need to be interested in and kind of engaged on the idea of being a financial manager, because in the end, that's my job. I manage other people's money. And you have to take that seriously, in my opinion. And there are some people who don't think of it that way. And I think that's a mistake. And secondly, like I mentioned earlier, the it's really important to be able to not always feel the need to be in control yourself. You know, part of what you have to I mean, we are minority shareholders. We sit on boards, we advise, we're a sounding board, we're a partner. We're absolutely not the people who are building the company or running the company. And so it's really important that you're okay with that. Um, And not every founder can deal with that ego hit, I think, at
1: times. What are the common challenges that businesses face as they're scaling up that that you would try and advise them on?
0: There are all kinds of challenges. But I think the single biggest thing is, in the end, startups, like most human endeavor, are all about the people. And it's really important to understand that the same people won't necessarily be relevant throughout the entire journey. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's really true. And you just got to be ready to change your team over time um, some people will go with the company all the way from start to finish and that's fine um, but then others just won't others will be perfect for a certain stage of the business but not for the for the next stage or for the stage before and so understanding that being okay with that you know still being very celebratory about the contribution people do make in the period that they are with the company is really important but it's really hard to 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 fall at that barrier um, you know when you're a founder it's a really lonely job it's a very' difficult, challenging job and you inevitably build very deep relationships and very tight relationships, codependencies, really, with some of your early employees and with your co-founders. And that's great. Some of those will be the strongest relationships you'll ever have, um, certainly in in your work life. But five years later, if the company is still growing massively, they may no longer be the right people for those jobs. And you need to be okay with that and moving away from that. Sometimes they will be, sometimes they won't be. And so, you know, being open-minded about that is is crucial. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And then the other big challenge is, with always with these things is, and this is maybe good kind of advice for life in general, is this whole thing around, you know, knowing what you can control and knowing what you can't control. And being able to focus your energies and your efforts and your emotions on the bits you can and letting go of the bits you can't. I think there's been a really big, Wake up call on that in the last couple of years, right? There's been an effective tech downturn in financing, Mm. in demand from the market, et cetera, et cetera. For, For many founders, they've never seen a downturn before in their lives, let alone in their startup careers. That's been just a really hard change. And many of them very inevitably, which is very normal and kind of healthy in a way, assume it's their fault. You know, and look at themselves and start blaming themselves or their team and beating themselves up over it. It's like, no, no, this has got nothing to do with you, and you have to realize that it has nothing to do with you in order to be able to focus on what you can change, because that's what we need to really do. Um, and so things like that, I think, are really hard as well.
1: Do you think you'll ever go back to being a CEO? or look to build another business.
0: I think it's extremely unlikely that I would ever be a CEO again. I really enjoyed it and I got a lot from it, but it's also like I've said, you know, many times a really, really hard job. And I think to do it you have to really, really be driven by something, whether it's just general success or a particular product that you are, you know, think need the world needs or, you know, the solving of a particular problem you think the world has. And right now, I don't. there isn't something that burns in me like that. Maybe if there was one day, then I would change my mind. But right now, it's hard to imagine.
1: What is it that drives you? What's driven you since you started off? I, I read that it, that it was being part of a team and, and, and making money. And those things were both very important to you. Is, is that right? Is that what's been the key drivers? The, the being part of a team thing is critical.
0: And, it, you know, you asked me earlier about um, journalism and being being in the media and stuff. And, and actually, that's what I loved about that, too. I mean, you know, given your background, you, you've been part of that yourself. You know that... There's something really exciting that's difficult to put your finger on um, about putting a paper to the bed, for example. Right. And there's that kind of frenzy of like everything's come together, all the different strands. You are there late at night, you know, putting the final final details and the final tweaks and then you put it out to print uh, and, and it's gone, you know, and it's got to work now, you know, and it's too late and i i love that dynamic i love that i love that energy that comes with that of having you know smart creative people all with different interests all with different focuses but who have to come together to make something work and only by coming together can the whole be greater than the sum of the parts um, and I enjoyed that as a, as a student journalist or a, or a school journalist. And I enjoyed it, you know, working on projects. And I really enjoyed it building a company. And I enjoy it. I enjoy being part of those teams to some extent as an investor. Um, you're not fully there in the end, like I said, you know, in the end, the companies are built by by the teams that really operate them. But as an early investor in particular, you get to be part of that journey to some extent. And I love being vicariously part of that team. It's a lot of fun. And it's, it's a very unique experience. It's very, very different to, you know, being a smaller cog in a larger enterprise, I think.
1: When talking to investors and VC investors, it's always tempting to ask what sectors are interesting you right now. <laughs> and, and I've noted from your past interviews that it's a question that... You, um, you you give answers to about it being the wrong question, not the yeah. way to look at it. Why, why do you think that? Because I think it's a really refreshing answer and it always feels like a sort of forced question whenever, whenever I've asked it. So to hear you, to you respond like that was refreshing. So why, why do you think like that? Yeah, I think, so the reality is that VCs, I, I think
0: most VCs are rubbish at telling the future. I, I really don't think our job is to gaze into a crystal ball. Our job is to spot lightning as it strikes and you know jump on the back of it as quickly as possible. You know, so that's what I look for I look for founders who are remarkable individuals but who are building remarkable things and for me it's all about being able to spot that with as little information and as quickly and as early as possible uh, and obviously ideally before my competition and then and then you know helping facilitate that founder achieve that uh, in a variety of ways you know obviously from writing them a check which gives them cash to do part of it but also helping them in you know a multitude of other ways as well and so that's what I think the job is about and therefore I don't really you know, I, of course, intellectually get excited about certain sectors here and there, and I'd read about them a lot and so on. But I'm, I'm never, uh, I, I don't, you know, hunt a particular sector looking for an investment in that sector. I just think that's a, that's a mistake. Interestingly, if you look at some of the most iconic companies that have been built over the years, many of them came out of sectors that were deeply unfashionable at the time that they had their early venture rounds. Um, the best example being Google. Search was seen as being a really, really crap industry and business model and business. All of the early attempts at search, AltaVista, InfoSeek, et cetera, they'd all been these big failures, really. I mean, they'd kind of, you know, in the dot-com boom, some of them had managed to get public, but really with very little revenue, no profits, et cetera. And and they'd all turn out to be really rubbish businesses from a sort of unit economic point of view. And so at the time that Sequoia and Kleiner did that infamous Series A into Google, it would have been quite counter the prevailing opinion of that particular industry. And at that point, by the way, Google didn't have a business model, had no revenue, and yet they still did it. And of course, you know, today that business is generating billions and billions of dollars of profit every single quarter. Just the search business, right? Forget all the stuff they've done. And so, you know, that to me is like an iconic venture uh, investment. And and it's a great example of where, you know, if you'd asked people that year, what are you looking at? What are the trends that matter? They wouldn't have said search. They would have said 50 other things, but not search.
1: How challenging is it to keep your focus? Because you've touched on this already. It's ultimately about getting the big wins. You can have big losses. And clearly there's competition in the industry as well for to get onto those big wins. So how do you make sure that you're keeping your focus on what you're looking for rather than being distracted by what others are investing in?
0: Yeah, so again, I think it really helps to be a student of history on this stuff. Because if you look at, and we've done this analysis internally, if you look at the most competitive investment rounds at or Series A 10, 15 years ago... In Europe, and obviously we have that data because we are one of the most competitive VC firms here in Europe, and we've been around for 23 years. So we we know we've been doing it for that long. In many cases, the companies that ended up being absolutely massive successes, you know, five or 10 years after that, or 15 years after that, were not the ones that were most competitive at Seed or Series A. Many of them were unknown to the people who didn't make those investments. Many of them were, you know, under the radar as far as everyone else concerned. Or or there were companies that people had met but have been uninterested in, you know, and so actually, that's what history shows. It's like the contrarian investments tend to be the ones that are the most interesting. There are a few exceptions, of course, that, you know, that were sort of popular from day one, but surprisingly few. And actually, the counter is also true. There are many companies that were you know, the hottest company at seed or Series A that then turn out not to be that exciting in the long run, at least from a venture investment point of view. So I think I think reminding yourself of that is really important. And it's hard because we're all human and FOMO is FOMO and it's human nature. And it's an industry full of kind of very competitive uh, overachievers. So, um, you know, people people get dragged into these things. But, but history suggests that that's not the right way to do it.
1: You've been listening to Business Leader with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. For more business news and analysis, check out businessleader.co.uk or sign up for our daily newsletter, Off to Lunch. There, you will get updates whenever a new episode of our podcast goes live. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.